Hello and welcome back to the Pod of Never. I'm your host, Matthew Donis. If this is your first time with the show, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Uh, I know you probably have a, a lot going on, and the fact that you chose to listen to this means a lot, so I really appreciate it. This week, I'm sitting down with my good friend, Joel Timmon. He is the VP of A&R and Publishing at Curb Word Entertainment here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I met him over 10 years ago because we were the rhythm section of our friend Bradley Hathaway. So I spent a couple of years um, living with him <laughs> in a van. And um, what's amazing about Joel, and we, I get in this in the interview, uh, ever since I really knew him, um, I could see that he had such a great mind for uh, the the business uh a, just business in general and the music business. So when I learned that he was going into managing, um, I just kind of knew he was going to do really, really well. And we talk about that a bit. Um, another thing we talk about is him uh, growing up in Southern Oregon, running a venue there. Uh, also, how he began managing without really any experience and his move to Nashville where he rose up the ranks basically to being a VP of A&R. So it's a really cool story. And also we, we there's a lot of tips here. If you were wanting to get into the music business, whether it be in the industry side or on the songwriter artist side, there's a lot of tips here for you. So if you're wondering how to break in the industry at all, this is the podcast for you. So we're going to get into the interview, uh, but first, some shameless self-promotion. Perfect Wine, the unreleased song from the 2010 Swans and Ever EP sessions. You can stream it at Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, and more. And if you're feeling especially generous, go ahead and donate a dollar or more at swansandever.bandcamp.com. So how how you doing, Joel? Man, I'm good. Just figuring out what what is happening in the world and life now, and yep. what the balance of work and family is. And I don't know that anyone really uh, is thinking about social life anymore, so that's not really there. But yeah, <laughs> would you would you call yourself an extrovert or an introvert? Um, on the Myers Briggs, I land with an E. But I'm okay. sort of like a, an introverted extrovert. Like I'm, I'm like the weird person that I could go into a party and sit in the corner and be totally content yep. or walk in and like stand on the table and be like, ah, let's party, you know? So yeah. um, 
but I definitely know that I need my recharge time and my mm -hmm. alone time, which is more of an introvert thing than an extrovert thing from what I understand. Yeah, I'm the exact same way. Like I remember taking like personality quizzes in high school like in mm -hmm. my for some reason my English class we did one yeah. and I remember like taking one like two years prior to that and then the next year and like I fluctuated between those like two worlds because yeah. I, I feel the exact same way because like uh you know whenever we'd be on tour together we'd find ourselves in a social situation I you know I would see that part of you mm -hmm. and like, you know, the extroverted thing, but then, yeah. you know, you're also very cool with like chilling out. And I feel like I'm the yeah. same way, like depending on the situation I can have fun and cut loose, you know, yeah. uh, without the help of alcohol, you know, I don't think I need that, you know, to do that, <laughs> but like that only lasts me for so long and mm -hmm. I do get tired of a situation and I just need to like cut out, you know, totally. even exactly. like in family situations, you know, like yeah, last night, I would, uh, you know, I knew I had like a really early meeting this morning. I'm like, okay, well, I need to, I need like 30 minutes to 45 minutes, like to chill out and then feel yeah. like I can go to sleep without yeah. other than going to bed. So I'm sure you're the same way. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely learned during this time with working at home, how much, even just like the 15, 20 minute car ride to and from my office, mm -hmm. um, is healthy for me. You know, just that time to just be like alone, chill, listen to a podcast or music or nothing and yeah. just like be me for a few minutes. Yeah, I, I've talked about that on this podcast before. I remember like the first couple of weeks COVID happened and I'm like, I have to do this. Yeah. To get ready. So, yeah, it's it's cool. It's cool to hear other people um, adjust. I mean, it, it's not cool that they have to adjust, <laughs> but it is what it is. You know, it's, yeah, it's exactly. Human life. So uh, your your title uh, mm -hmm. in, your, in your work is uh, VP of A&R and Publishing at Curveword Entertainment. So if yeah. someone, you know, say if you're, if, if a musician, a musician is listening to this and, they, you know, they have the preconceived notions of what you do, like mm -hmm. set the record straight as far as like what you do in your day to day. What does that even mean? For sure. It is. I have a weird multifaceted job um, in that I A&R some artists on the label side. I am a publisher for songwriters, producers and artists on the publishing side of the company. And that part of the job encompasses like setting up co-writes and calendars for everybody, listening to songs, giving them feedback and then ultimately, hopefully finding homes for the songs if they're not written with an artist, if they are written with an artist, you know, smiling and telling them how wonderful the song is. And then the other part of my job, I do sync for the whole company for label and publishing. So that means I get songs in TV shows, movies, commercials, uh, video games, all that kind of stuff. So I have, um, and then to step back the A&R side, a lot of that is, you know, just sitting with artists, developing songs, picking songs for records, finding collaborators they like to work with, uh, helping to dial in sounds, being along for the ride with like imaging, covers, all their brand, everything like that. I would say that I'm not the one who necessarily um, comes up with that, but I'm pretty good at saying like, 
this is good. This is cool. This is not good. This is not cool. <laughs> like, uh, it, it's sort of the same. Like I always said, like when it came to music and songwriting, I couldn't, I could never start a song. Like I'm not that type of person, but I could mm-hmm. help get it across the finish line. Yeah. As far as like a corollary, corollary to my world, you know, at, like in content creation, mm-hmm. like you wouldn't be the copywriter. You would be the marketing manager or the content strategist be like, Hey, you know, we have all these ways we know you can create. Here's what yeah. you need to do. Here's how we do it. And we're going to help you do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, I'm, I'm going to say this in the intro and I'm sure whoever's listening has already heard it, but you and I, our, our history goes back like over 10 years ago. Yeah. We played in a band together with uh, Bradley Hathaway. You were the drummer. I was the bass player. And I, you I also like played acoustic guitar. I, I played like, I mean, there was a you song. You played where, everything. <laughs> a mandolin before mandolins yeah. were cool, I guess. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. it was pre-Lumineers, I think. I don't yeah. know. I think we're it was. Sure. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I got a really good sense of your trajectory even then, like, even though mm. like you were pursuing the music side of it, I still think you were managing an artist at that point, like uh, Jonathan Stark. Like, I can't remember. Yeah. Really. You so were doing that. It would have been probably midway through because we played with Bradley for what, two or three years. About a couple years. Yeah. Okay, so if we, let's say we played with him for two years, it was probably into the first year, maybe the second time we did Cornerstone. I like very specifically remember we were actually staying at our friend Eric's house, who you had on previous podcast. Um, We were staying at his house, and I remember I had called a band that I was friends with from Portland, Oregon, and had literally been like, hey guys, I've done a bunch of stuff. And I think maybe I might be like good at managing bands and you guys are cool. Would you let me try? And that was sort of how I I went to that side of it. And before that, before Bradley, like I had um, opened and co-run a music venue in Southern Oregon and also been in a band and toured and made records. So like I had some level of experience with both the playing and the business side and in the running the venue promoting side, like I did deal with contracts. I dealt with nationally touring artists and, you know, booking agents from LA, New York, Nashville, Chicago, like all that kind of stuff. So I had like this little grasp of the business side. And then in the band, um, we had two different managers over the course of our career. So I dealt with that um, for better or worse. And that Honestly, that was part of the thing that made me go like, man, I uh, did not have the world's greatest experience with managers, and I feel like I could do better. And also, since I have toured, played, been on the artist side, I have a little more like empathy for the artist because like, you know, we've uh, you and I both have like slept in a van, eaten top ramen and apples for a week, you know, and so it's like you you can relate a little more than someone who's like, Oh, I went to college. Then I got an internship. Then I worked here. uh, Then I did this. And it's like for not to demean that, but there's something that comes with the experience and the quote unquote struggle of being in the shoes of the artist that just makes you realize what it takes a little bit more. 
Yeah. So when you, when you said, you know, you were in bands, you had a couple of, of managers and not to like, I'm, I'm not asking for names yeah. by any stretch of imagination, yeah. but um, what were, what were a couple examples that you had to deal with that should be like red flags for other artists who are, you know, going that route? Yeah. Um, both of them started great. Uh, and then there was a lack of consistent communication. Um, literally with both of them, when our band let go of each manager, uh, it was because they made promises. They over-promised, under-delivered, to use that expression. Yeah. And then when we sort of called them on it, it'd be like two or three weeks with no communication, mm. you know? And so it's that type of thing where like, to me, a big red flag is just like zero communication, you know? And like, uh, the other thing is with one guy, our first manager, he tried to get us a deal um, with a label actually ironically in Nashville. And it was a, it was an artist development deal and we didn't want to do that. We felt like we were a little past that and blah, blah, blah. And when we didn't sign it, he was sort of like out of ideas and options. And that's the other thing. It's like, you know, back then, I mean, this was 2004, 2005. So streaming yeah. didn't exist. Like to get a song on iTunes, like you sort of had to know somebody, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, it wasn't easy. Like you made money by selling CDs. Um, this is like the advent of like MySpace and social media and stuff. So it was a very different era for music. I don't think YouTube existed. If it did, it was like hard to find. Cause also like internet speeds were slower than, you know, like, so anyway, uh, yeah. So red flags would be like communication ideas, them being motivated. Um, I've experienced this and I've had a few other artists that have experienced this where like, a manager will invoice them for travel, which technically is a thing, but it's like, mm -hmm. if, if they haven't made you money, it's hard for me to be like, Hey, this is justified yeah. because you clearly like, yes, you did do this on my behalf and I get it. But like, what's the result? What's the action? What's the thing that's like mm -hmm. coming out of this? So yeah. yeah. So it, it sounds like to me that you used your negative experiences for you to to walk out and just be like, well, A, it's like kind of ballsy to say like, I want to manage you, just give me a chance. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> because like you obviously know what not to do, but like yeah. at this point, like, you know, let's be frank, like you're still drumming, you're still touring, totally. but but I could tell even back then from the limited knowledge I have, because there's still some things I think about back then. I wish I would have. Yeah. Totally. But I, but that's one thing I always like knew about you. So when you, you know, had the guts to be like, Hey, let's just try this out. What mm -hmm. was like your strategy then? Because like, I imagine you had contacts in some, in some ways, Didn't, but like, yeah. But how did that look to you? Like as far as like your services? Yeah, so I didn't have a ton of contacts yet. I had a few from my band. And then that band, I basically was like, hey, send me anything that was business related that you got. Um, I also, <clears throat> the band that I had been in, I more or less was the booking agent and had booked like 
five or six national tours. So I had a pretty big contact list to get people on the road. Um, and basically what happened is they sent me a bunch of like emails, ironically from like major label A&Rs. And this was probably 2008 ish. So there had been a huge turnover. I mean, I feel like every year always there's turnover in the music industry, but they sent me all these contacts and more or less like eight out of the 10, like got like no longer work here replies. Right. Um, but a couple of people did reply and they were still into the band. And uh, one of them, it was crazy. Like one of them was like, Hey, if they ever come to New York, we'll like, we'll bring people out. Another one did showcases for A&R people in Hollywood. Like, so basically what happened is I got them on the road for like six, seven weeks and did the thing. Like we did it when we played with Bradley where it's like, Hey, show trade. Hey, you're good at like, you guys want to do four shows with us in the Midwest, you know, like just pieced it together. Um, got them out to New York. They did a show, like a handful of labels came, uh, on that run. It was also crazy. And this was a lot of like, I didn't know what was like the value or like, Whoa, this is crazy. This is happening type stuff. It was just like, this is happening. Um, they actually won a competition to play at South by Southwest where like, they got to do an official showcase specifically for music supervisors. And like, we didn't know what that meant at that point. And they right. got a per diem and a hotel room for a week, like all this stuff. And then they did the LA showcase. And so a lot of it was like learning as we went. I mean, literally, I remember I had a phone call with an A&R person from Republic in New York when we were on tour, like we were somewhere in South Carolina I actually remember the weird venue and it was a dude who played, I'll remember later, um, who I actually reconnected with in Nashville, but there, it was a venue in South Carolina. Like I remember having a phone call and just being like, uh, yeah, so they're a band and you are an A&R person. Like, what should we, how do we grow this? What do we do now? You know, like just all that kind of stuff. So a lot of it, I mean, was the, the adage, fake it till you make it like, I read a book right. by Donald Passman called everything you need to know about the music business and like got, you know, 4% knowledge and just grew that and had conversations and figured it out to a degree. So, <laughs> right. So it's, it's funny cause you know, I have my limited experience and I, and I still put out music, but as far as like my quote unquote quote, like real experience like dealing mm -hmm. with like a and r and whatnot like it's it's pretty limited but it's the fake it till you make it thing I, it's true <laughs> a yeah. lot, lot of sense you know especially yeah. a, like coming from like the indie diy like punk rock yeah. world because like totally. you want to do something you just got to do it and it's funny because like if i wanted to go down that path like the music industry path which you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've thought about like it really is just like building those relationships and then building those skills within those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty transferable. I yeah. think, you know, uh, doing free work <laughs> really. Cause I don't totally. imagine you got paid during that, that time. No, it took a while to get any money. And it wasn't like, I always had that hope of like, let's get to that place where there's like real, like, I wanted a career for them, you know, and 
Um, same thing with Jonathan Stark, who you mentioned, like very similar thing with him. Um, I had learned a little bit more about like sync world and getting placements and was trying to find partners for him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it was the, the fake it to me, make it. And the other thing that you mentioned is relationships and like, for me, it's like being nice and being transparent and real to people and communicative. Like, ironically, that person I mentioned from Republic, like she still works there. That's so our crazy. relationship <laughs> is like 12 or 13 years deep at this point. And like, we've done releases together since I've been in my current role. And if I go to New York, like I'll go have a meeting at her office and try and find more stuff to work on, you know? So it's like the, just the fact that like, that relationship still exists is crazy to me. Um, and a like, you never know. So. Well, I don't know who this person is, but props to her for sticking around in that yeah, level job. For that she's crushing it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, was that around the same amount of time, like when you started managing that you were, you wanted to transition out of performing? Like when did that change for you? So probably a year and a half ish or two years after I started doing management, um, I moved to Nashville. And one of my goals in Nashville was like, I still wanted to play music and perform and do that creative side. But I did, I'd like literally said like, I don't want to be like 35 and on a tour bus. Like even if I'm doing well, like, cause I'm, hoping that at that point in my life, I'll have a family and stuff. And right. I just don't have the desire to be gone a hundred days a year. You know, like it just, I, at that point I had probably played a thousand shows and toured for the better part of like eight years or so, you know, so it was like done this, done it a lot, had so much fun, crossed the country probably 14 or 15 times, you know, uh, played some amazing shows played some shows to the sound guy, played, you know, slept in a nice hotel, slept in a park on a bench, like you name it, we did it, you yeah. know? Um, so yeah, so when I moved here, it was definitely with the intention of getting onto the business side, but hopefully having like a little tail of playing for a few years uh, to transition over just cause I loved it. And yeah. um I was fortunate enough. I got, I did tour for about the whole first year, year and a half I lived here. Um, not like the whole time, but I got two or three tours in that time frame and made a couple records with people and uh, found a few clients to manage when I worked here. And that that sort of began the journey of the the song creation and publishing and songwriter thing that I didn't know existed before moving to Nashville. Right. So because like when I moved to Nashville, my thing was like the people who write songs are the band in the room together. And the people who don't write songs are like Britney Spears, you know, like that was my right. notion. So I, uh, started managing a band, the band fell apart. The producer of the band told the singer, you should pursue songwriting and a publishing deal. He told me that, and we both like scratched our heads for a few months uh, and started fake it till you make it. We started figuring it out. He started writing with people. 
I went, wow, this like works really well because I call in a favor and all of a sudden you have like three more dates with that person who's like a real songwriter, quote unquote, you know, like they have a publishing deal or whatever. And so we sort of together did that for about a year. He actually got some songs recorded, um, had a song go to radio, had a few songs get in TV shows. Like it was crazy. Um, and probably within a year and a half, he actually had like two or three publishing companies offer him deals. Um, and in that time frame, I also started working with two other songwriters who are producers and just really dove into that world and learning that world, um, <clears throat> connecting the dots. And part of it was like selfishly as a manager, I was like, okay, like you can have a considerably longer career doing this. Uh, we don't have to worry about Twitter. We don't have to worry about merch. I never have to like book a show. I never have to hear about a van uh, engine blowing in the middle of Kansas. Like this feels great, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So that was sort of the journey there uh, in the transition out of like playing music onto the business side. Yeah. I, I think another thing that I want to get into is that uh, you, you clearly moved to Nashville for music. Yeah. Which funny enough, I moved to Nashville, not for music. I just ended up (laughs) making music. And so um, I think in today's world where, you know, everything is remote and I'm not even talking about like COVID, like I can be a songwriter in Alaska and have some of the same advantage, maybe not advantages, but at least the the playing field is somewhat level. Right. So if someone, uh, maybe like myself who thinks like, Oh, you don't need to move anywhere to mm-hmm. get ahead. What would you, what would your retort be as far as moving to a place like LA, Nashville or, or New York? Um, I mean, I, I can only speak from experience uh, being where I was in a band in Southern Oregon. Um, there was no industry. There was no opportunity. Touring out of Southern Oregon was super hard, very expensive. Um, And just, you know, there's literally 0% chance that you're going to play a show somewhere and a random person who's in the industry will walk in. There's a chance that'll happen in Seattle, LA, New York, Nashville. You know what I mean? Um, So just that, like, and that chance is like, you know, a a needle in a haystack like it's probably not going to happen but it might yeah so there's a little bit of that there's a little bit of like also the the opportunity to connect with or meet with people on the industry side randomly out at night at a show whatever uh that only exists in places where people who do music for a living live um and then the collaboration side of things yes you definitely can collaborate via zoom or FaceTime or postal service style, like whatever. But I do think that there's just going to be more opportunities in a place where music is being made commercially for the masses. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're obviously amazing. Like Lord came from where, you know what I mean? It's like, there's, that's a common story, but then what happens to all of these artists that come from Kansas City, middle of New Zealand, middle of Europe, like inevitably 
if they sign to a label and they're not the anomaly that does everything by themselves, they're probably going to be in LA for a while, London for a while, Nashville, New York, you know, like that's where they will go to collaborate. And at some point they may find it easier to just relocate to one of those places rather than flying there once a month or whatever. Right. So, So, yeah. So yeah, uh, it's, it's really funny, like since moving here, uh, cause I've, you know, I've been focusing on, on working. So and mm-hmm. you know, got a family. So like my, my goals differ, yeah. but like even, but the limited amount of times where I have gone to shows and, you know, been involved with like, you know, I have friends who are in the instrument making industry Mm-hmm. You no, know, but then I just hear stories like, "Oh yeah, Corey Taylor from Slipknot came in." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you realize like how close you are, like your yeah, X absolutely. degrees of you know separation. Oh yeah, race. Oh, yeah. yeah, like amazingly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, more power to artists who want to stay home and do things like 100%. that. But if your goal is to start really getting serious about being in the industry, like I mean, you yeah. said it. I mean, sometimes there's no there's no substitute. Yeah. I mean, sort of the impetus of me moving here was the goal to do music for a living. And I lived in a small town where there was not that option. All my friends had moved to Portland where there really wasn't that option either, especially 10, 11 years ago. And I looked and I went, okay, LA, New York or Nashville. Like that was just what it was. And um, at that point I knew like, New York wasn't an option because I'm like, I'm not going to pay $2,400 a month for a 12 square foot apartment, you know, <laughs> and right. uh, LA seemed cool, but I, I didn't really want to go there for a, a couple reasons. One, it just felt like it would also be very expensive. And my network there was different than what Nashville was. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the goal of playing for a while, I knew that touring would be a part of that. And I, didn't want to tour out of the West coast anymore because day one, you're driving eight hours pretty much no matter what. (laughs) So I was like, I like the idea of driving three or four hours. Atlanta sounds a lot better. Yeah. So (laughs) so there is some of that in the consideration factor. Yeah. And I think as far as the culture, as far as like playing shows and and Mm -hmm. music, um, I mean, you can be cynical all you want, but I remember the second day I was in Nashville, I went to a show yeah, the cannery, and like people were actually excited to see yeah. this show, yeah. and and I can I can imagine it's the same way of like collaborating and and creating and actually being like people just have like a different vibe here than LA as far as like my experience goes in music, at least. Cool. Yeah. So it's changed. Yeah. It used to be a little more uh, uptight, a little more like arms crossed at every show, mm-hmm. but. that's surprising to me yeah that's actually really surprising to me i think it came from two things like most people in nashville are incredibly gifted at music so there's like a weird i don't know if you would say judgment but just sort of like observation happening when people are playing music Mm -hmm. and then the other side of it is there's a lot of people who are here to perform and play music so they're like, I mean, I should be on stage doing that instead of them. So I'm not gonna lie, I, I went to a round once and I was like, what? Uh, yeah, okay, I could yeah. I could do that. 
Yes. Yeah. Some, <laughs> sometimes. I mean, I worked at a restaurant here when I first moved here that was an awesome like music venue, very tasteful. Um, just the people who played there were always great. And I remember there were a few nights where they'd do a ride around and like, it wouldn't even be bad. It'd just be like, sort of okay. Yeah. And I remember thinking, and I mean, this was like nine years ago and I like barely knew anything yet, but I'd been there for a few months. And I just remember being like, man, these people need to like go and start over or quit or something. Because like, <laughs> just because I had seen in that little glimpse I had like such a high level of talent mm -hmm. and songwriting that I was like, I mean, you're not going to stand up to like these other 100 people that I've seen in the last four months. So yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Like if I, I could only imagine like you were a waiter and then you could just go up to them and be like, you know what, you know, give them advice. On them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no tip. No I'm tip. Like, no. <laughs> what are you doing? Waiter boy. Yeah, exactly. So I want to get kind of like to the, in, into some nitty gritty because like there might be some people out here who not know certain terms, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I remember, cause like I had a vague idea of what publishing was, but I feel like it's within like the last like couple of years that I finally like figure out what syncing was. Yeah. Yeah. So there might be some folks who not, who won't know what that is. So can you explain yeah. to people what that even is? hundred percent. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, when I got this job, I barely even knew what it was and I was in charge of it. Um, <laughs> it was, like I said, fake it till you make it. I, within a month or two, I had figured it out pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Um, I mean, and even on a little bit of a side, like I never went to school for it. I never had internships. I never had like mentorship. So that was where a lot of the fake it till you make it came from. Um, but SYNC stands for synchronization. And it's basically um, putting music in a, it's pairing audio and visual. So, you know, if you see a TV show and you hear a song, that is a sync. Um, sometimes the song could be a library song where it's like someone just created a bunch of things and send it to them. Some could be a song by an artist that you know. Um, it could be a song by the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Sophie Tucker, you know, whatever. Um, and there's money that is paid to the owners of that. Uh, and then a little bit in that nitty gritty is there is um, two sides to each song, so to speak. So there's a recording, which we refer to as the master, which often a record company will own. Mm -hmm. And then there's the publishing side, which is the composition, which is what the songwriters and or publishers own. Um, and so usually there is payment that's presented for both of those things, because sometimes um, they might, you know, there might be a Beatles song, let's say Hard Day's Night, mm -hmm. and they can't afford to pay for the original Beatles recording. So they'll get someone else to record it. And they'll pay them a much lower amount of money, but then they also have to still pay the Beatles, the publishing side. Right. So that may be where, you know, if they have a hundred thousand dollars for it, they might have to give the Beatles 95 of it and give me who recorded it in my bedroom five, you know, or whatever it might be. Wow. Um, so there's, there's that 
uh, that part of it. Wow, that's crazy because I didn't know know that as far as like the recreation. So when someone calls for that, like, are they mm-hmm. trying to recreate it to a T or just like a cover? It depends. There was a, you may have noticed this, um, but not fully like ingested it. So there is a season where every single movie trailer was a dark and brooding cover song. So you'd see like, you'd see like Mad world. Yeah, exactly. Or like what a wonderful life or whatever. And, or what a wonderful world, but it's like about like post-apocalyptic in a world. And then it's like minor key, uh, distorted cello stabs and someone singing in like the saddest voice you've ever heard. So it's like this juxtaposition, you know, so it's, mm. there's that kind of stuff where they, they like that irony or whatever it may be. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's crazy. So like, and I imagine from the little bits of media that I've been listening to, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, at least from what I heard, you can tell me about your experience that, sinks are going crazy right now as far as uh just how many are, are coming through because because i feel like what covid did it's making making people you know they have to change you know like whether mm-hmm. it be like a tv tv not tv station but you know like channels yeah. whatever like their programming's changing they got to make it yeah. up on the fly are you seeing that yourself uh, as far as the the need for for sinks going up or yes and no um, the, the COVID thing made it trickier because a lot of productions were put on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of like this, the newness of needs has slowed down a little bit, but the amount of opportunities for syncs has gone up since things like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. I heard, I mean, this was probably two or three years ago, I heard an interview with the team that did the man in the high tower, which I think was like Ridley Scott productions. And they just sort of in passing had talked about when they made that show originally, they had tried to get it on the BBC and it didn't work and all this stuff. And then fast forward, like six years after they actually originally had the concept, there was an opportunity for Amazon prime to pick it up. And he said that when they originally pitched it, there was something like, 60 syndicated or like 60 shows on TV between all the networks. Mm -hmm. And then that year there were like 480 shows because of Netflix who like all this stuff. So just that in and of itself. So it goes, you know, there's 320 new shows. Obviously these aren't completely the right numbers, but let's say there's 320 new shows. And of those 200 are using not stock music. Mm-hmm. So you have 200 new TV shows that all need songs, you know, and some of them might be like one song, some of them might be period, but some of them might be like a random show that's like all about 15 songs in it, you know, so it's like mm-hmm. suddenly you have a, a 10 episode season, that's 150 songs. So yeah. you you see that exponential opportunity um, just from this, the amount of streaming shows. And then there's things like promos, you know, if NBC is like coming this fall, our new slate, like all of a sudden you need songs for that. And there might be like four different promos like that. So there's definitely more than ever 
and the way music works from a publishing perspective, sales have gone down, obviously, streaming's yep. skyrocketed, and publishers, as you've probably seen, and songwriters are not treated fairly the way they're compensated from streaming. Mm-hmm. So you have to find ways to make money as a songwriter and a publisher, and sync is one of the only remaining ways where you can actually see like real dollars come in. Yeah, that's a great segue to my next question because if you're someone who had been cutting their teeth on the road, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's it's taken away, and they might they might not know like the publishing world. Yeah, uh, what's like the first step for them to get involved in, into syncing? Totally. So a couple things that didn't exist, you know, when we came up and we didn't have those resources, like start looking on YouTube for panels, um, literally look like music sync panel, you know, that kind of yeah. stuff. Cause there's tons of resources just to start getting educated. Um, and then there's a couple other things that I would say is start looking at like artists you like or are similar to and if they're getting placements just try and like follow the thread you know like Mm -hmm. go and see who does their licensing who represents them like all of those types of things because then it's like oh they're licensed by you know let's make cell phone music group okay so john at cell phone music group hey man what's up i love this band and here's some of my music uh it may be unsolicited but if you can check it out, great. If not, could you point me in the direction of a company that would? Like just that kind of stuff, I think is where, um, again, when we came up, those tangible resources just weren't available. Yeah, Google's your friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, <really? laughs> I mean, the number of people I know who've learned how to remodel their house from YouTube, you know, that kind of stuff mm. and Google and all that, it's like, if you are willing to put in the work, the resources are there. Yeah. In as far as artists go, I, I always see you post on your Instagram like new releases mm-hmm. that you have like every Friday, like clockwork. Yeah. I'm seeing like, yeah. <laughs> like three or four songs that you're that That's you're what I have on. to do. <laughs> yep. Got gotta be a team player, right? Yeah. Um so if if I'm a songwriter and I wanted mm-hmm. to play a game, you know, yeah. I am a songwriter. I'm playing the yeah. game, Joel. Yeah, yeah. This is why you're on the podcast. I'm just kidding. Absolutely. But um, <laughs> so if if I'm wanting to be become a part of this world and if I'm yeah. a songwriter, like like what's my not so much like what's my next step, but like this is a very wow. high level question. But like yeah. um like how do I even begin my process to becoming a songwriter or performer in in this world? Totally. Um So this, it's funny, whenever I do like panels or speaking things, it's like, that's always like one of the main questions. Right. Um, Or like, how do I find songwriters? Like that kind of stuff. And there's a number of ways. Um, Number one, like be active and do it and do it as though someone's already doing it for you. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. it's your career. No one's going to make it happen better than you can and more than you can. Um, but like start collaborating, find people to write with, hit up people that, you know, that write songs that are published, hit up people that, you know, that aren't published, you know, like, you know, people who used to be in bands or are still in bands, like, Hey man, you want to riff? Like, let's do this. And so there's a lot of that. 
Um, and then it is this thing of like your network posting. Like I post about songs that come out honestly because I'm proud of the people I work with. Yeah. And cause it's, it's really hard. Like it's hard to get a song out. Like the, if you want to start thinking about batting averages, like a normal songwriter who's not like a hit songwriter, like we have a bunch of people we publish, they'll write, let's say a hundred to 150 songs a year. If we get 15 cuts, so like 10, 15%, like we're doing pretty well. If yeah. you get two of those songs on radio or they're like successful in some way, like you're doing really well. That's a pretty low percent, you know? So it's like, it's, it's also like learning to deal with no, learning to uh, not be precious is a huge thing that I tell people. There's a balance of the preciousness though, because if you are wanting to be a songwriter that collaborates and has other people record your songs, you're at the mercy of other people and a lot of their opinions. If you're an artist, I can let you be a little more precious because you're the one who's going to say that probably for the rest of your life, you know? So it's, it's a little different in that balance as well in terms of um, the approach to become noticed and the writer. Um, but also, I mean, it is what I was saying earlier, like this is a business of relationships and when people are not nice and not cool, um, a lot of people know pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. And so, when you say, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so like treating people right is yeah. a huge thing. I mean, that's a given in life, yeah. but there's a lot of people who don't. So, <laughs> yeah. And when you say the word precious, do you mean like the, the line between the art and the business side of it? Like say like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm writing songs. Yeah. I have a vision for it. Yeah. And would you say that like falls into like the preciousness of holding things tightly in that sense? Yes or... and no. I mean, I'm I'm also going down to like, hey, I don't like that lyric gotcha. and someone someone being offended by that and not wanting to work with someone anymore or being unwilling to change like in the room in the moment. Like that kind gotcha. of thing. Um the collaboration aspect more than anything else. Yeah, cuz I think one thing as artists like we can be very uh just hold on to things tightly totally. to things that don't really matter like i've seen that in in my experience you know mm -hmm. working in different bands and working for other songwriters where yeah there might be an idea and all of a sudden like the whole day is ruined because like you can't <laughs> yep get past stuck <laughs> yeah i mean i and our three artists and those meetings and conversations are very different than the ones that I have with people who are just writing songs for other people. Yeah, there's a difference. Mm -hmm. they're, they're the, the performer and, and the, the songwriter, there's a, mm -hmm. a different understanding of, of each. Yeah. So, and we, we talked about this in a, in a text message before, but I think it's really important to have this conversation here. So, you know, COVID's here. I mean, I, I don't think anything is going to change for quite a while. Right. Yeah. So for a songwriter performer, um, in your experience, what are the ways that they're pivoting mm -hmm. to make this work for them? I mean, we have one artist, she's been doing a lot of like 
partnered Instagram live or on their website, like from my living room type of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, like she probably does them once a week. So things like that, um, conversations with people. I think now more than ever, there's a good opportunity to collab with people in a way that you both benefit too. You know, it's like if mm-hmm. two people have a thousand Instagram followers and they're like, hey, let's do like an Instagram live together, whether it's a show or a conversation or like, let's show people how we wrote this song together, you know, whatever it might yeah. be. Um, I think just being creative in that way is very important. Um, haven't seen a ton of data or info on like the actual finances that are happening from this. Mm-hmm. But I just think building your following, showing that you're still active, you still want to do it is like step one, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And then, I mean, we live in a content age. So it's like, if you're not, if you're not releasing music and putting out content in four weeks, I forgot about you. Yeah. I think there's only a handful of people that can get by on the like mysterious. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, the only people who are getting by on albums and an album cycle are legacy acts. So like the mm-hmm. killers, they're allowed to put out an album every two or three years and like not put a song out every six to eight weeks in perpetuity, you know, like yeah. they can do that. Coldplay can do that. Um, but brand new artists that's trying to make it once they put that album out, they better know what they're dropping in like two months. Like, They better have a plan for whether it's a remix, an acoustic version, a new song. You know, it's like you have to be doing that. They have to have like three music videos in the can ready to roll out too. you know, so Mm. um, and engaging people on social media. Well, it's kind of like what you said, like batting averages, Mm -hmm. because I feel like the world of rock versus the world of like pop in in hip-hop like they're kind of two separate worlds right now because you've got pop and in hip-hop they're releasing singles left Mm -hmm. and right and but they're getting millions of hits on spotify like tiktok or whatever but i feel like the world of rock is still in this antiquated like album cycle thing like yeah something that i've had to break as far as my mind you know because like Mm -hmm. you're saying like the artistry like well it's got to be this thing and it takes a body of a, work yeah a body of work right but then like guess who's dominating yeah right yeah <laughs> and and some of that is like from a completely non-artistic way the the thing called the algorithm you know it's yep. like spotify's computers know if you're consistently releasing music and it hits certain uh algorithmic playlisting and all this other stuff so there's there's a lot of importance to that. Um, I don't. I would say value, but I don't know if that, that's the right word to consistent releasing because mm-hmm. sometimes the songs aren't as good as they would have been if they had a little more time to spend on it. You know. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's an important thing to be aware of and to be practicing and doing if if you are a newer artist. And it's funny you mentioned like genres because country music also is a bit behind. Um, It's still definitely an album-based, album-cycle-based format and genre. So it's it's also a little bit um, the consumer. So pop and hip-hop and 
Latin, um, are a little more coastal, big city, uh, urban environment consumer and young. Mm-hmm. Um, country music and rock music tends to be a little more middle America and the demographic is generally a little bit older. So those people may still be buying physical things or buying on iTunes mm-hmm. uh, and not as much into like streaming on YouTube on their cell phone or have a Spotify account they listen to in their car. Like they may still be popping the CD in. So that's a big difference. And I mean, I've even noticed that on, cause we have country stuff at our company and I've watched songs that release and go gold in six months. And I'm like, what? And then I'll, <laughs> I'll look at a number and be like, Oh, it physically sold 350,000 copies, you wow. know? And it's yeah. like, that's a lot of actual sales. Like it takes a lot of streams to go gold, yeah. but when you, you know, you get the this sales equivalent with streams, you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. These guys are like making real money still. I ran across the RIA uh, website as far as like certifications. Yeah. And the amount. So, for instance, like Weezer, Buddy Holly. I don't know why yeah. I search for this because yeah. my brain does it sometimes. <laughs> like the single digitally only has only gone gold. Yeah. Like, and if you go on Spotify, it's like, I don't know, 12 million, maybe more. Like, I'm yeah. probably really underselling it. And so it's. It's bonkers, you know, the, the weight of these things. So, mm-hmm. so I know you got, oh, go ahead. What's cool, what I was going to say, what's yeah. cool for someone like Weezer or even going back to like the Beatles yeah. is think about the owners of those recordings. So they made a lot of money one time mm-hmm. selling it in Sam Goody or whatever. And right. then fast forward to the advent of streaming and digital sales even. So it's like, how so the Beatles made a ton of money again when iTunes was invented and they could sell them as MP3s, and then they're currently making a bunch of money streaming the songs again. So it's Triple dip. obviously the Beatles are like the pinnacle of it, but think about like you know, a band that may not be as big like Incubus or Bush or someone like that that like sold a lot of CDs, yeah. and now it's like they're going, Oh, we're making revenue again by streaming these songs. It may not be millions of dollars but it might be like hundreds of thousands you know or whatever which is a significant thing for the owner whether it's a record company or if they got the rights to their masters back might be the band who knows so Mm -hmm. yeah the yeah i was i was gonna say the the back catalog matters oh yeah i mean this this company curb we have a pretty substantial back catalog that generates a lot of bottom line and it's great Amen. So I know you only got a little bit more uh, time left. So, um, so I just want to thank you for for hopping on and, and yeah, catch man. up and, and talking talking business and and maybe a few people who don't know or want to know like these sort of things they can use it for uh, their advantage. So yeah, um, I hope so. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe maybe if there's one last thing you can impart for someone who just wants to get into the business, but they're an artist yeah. right now. What's like, I, I think we, we, we might've hit on it before, but if you could just mm-hmm. sum it up into one two words, yeah, two words, two or three words, keep going. No, uh, honestly, it's like, just find resources and dig into those, the YouTubes of the world, the Googles of the world. Um, 
I mean, if, if you want to do classes, you know, like there's definitely music business classes offered online from places like Berkeley and Belmont and whatever else. Um, and then just like find people that you, you know, we live in a smaller world than ever with social media. So it's like find people who do stuff and in a very polite, non-annoying way, reach out and just say, Hey, I'm interested in this. Um, would love to ask a question. It's I, I get a little annoyed when people are like, man, I'd love to pick your brain on this. Uh-huh. And then it's like a two hour coffee hang where I'm like, like, and, and not in a, a rude way, just like I've worked pretty hard to get to where I'm at and even like my knowledge base. And um, I'm happy to have conversations, but it's like, that's a lot of time to like reveal all the trade secrets, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, all that to say, like also be courteous with the people you're reaching out to. Cause every, everyone's busy. You're busy. I'm busy. Like you don't know. And you don't know what people are going through. Um, that's a big thing that I always like to say is like, you know, someone may have had a terrible day. They might've been cut off. They might've gotten in a wreck. They might've like had some bad news or whatever. So it's like, mm-hmm. if someone's rude to you, like maybe they're rude, but also maybe they just had a bad day. So also maybe don't like, Oh, so-and-so never got back to me. They must be jerks. And I'm going to tell all my friends about it, you know, whatever yeah. it's like, uh, because that also gets back to those people. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, treat people right and do your work. Amen to that. Well, well, thanks a lot, Joel. Uh, I know, I know you got a busy day <laughs> and, we'll um, yeah, well, <laughs> it's Friday who knows in, in the land of, of, you know, where yeah. we are right now. So, yeah, exactly. uh, um, it's, it was great to catch up and, yeah, uh, and chat in, uh, maybe, maybe in the future we can do it again face to face without microphones and that'd be great. Recording. I was like, uh, social distance style exactly six feet apart with masks on yep i got mine right here it's great mine's in my car i have a saves a day pin on it oh nice Uh, of course you do yes (laughs) uh like it's the pin is probably not even 15 years old it's probably like almost 20 years old. so good it's a relic Mm -hmm. all right (laughs) yes uh great album anyway uh (laughs) Thank you for coming on, man. Of course. Have a good one.